Welcome back to the program. There was a time before the Internet, before the automobile, before air conditioning and television and radio, and even before the printing press. All of these inventions and many others dramatically transformed the way we live. At the time, each was criticized for the ruinous impact that it would have. The printing press was thought to be the end of religion. Air conditioning would keep us inside and not allow us to connect with each other, as would the automobile, just as television would destroy our brain. The fact is that each of these inventions changed us and changed the way we live. And the result wasn't good or bad, it was just different. It was all part of the process of human evolution. Ever since man first emerged from the cave, we've been engaged in an ongoing effort to try and shape and define our man-made environment, just as it continues to try and define and shape us. We're going to talk about all of this today in the context of the impact of technology with my guest, Michael Harris. He's a contributing editor at Western Living and Vancouver Magazine, and it is my pleasure to welcome him here to talk about his new book, The End of Absence, Reclaiming What We've Lost in the World of Constant Connection. Michael Harris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. Should we be talking about the way it used to be, or simply focusing on how we can better deal with the world as it is, given the distractions and given the nature of how we interact with technology today? I'd say that's a false decision, because I think the best way that we can live with technology today is by understanding our history. Uh, and that's that's part of what, what is uh, being done in the book. It's part of what's being done uh, by yourself in, in that introduction that you just gave. Uh, I think our, our history of technology is so fascinating, and so many uh, great historians have tackled it, uh, that we can really mine it for information about the ways that uh, everything from papyrus to the telegraph to the telephone uh, has changed the way we see the world, and, and therefore we can... Uh, then take those lessons and apply them to Twitter and Pinterest. I mean, I guess there's two parts of that. One is the historical perspective, which arguably is incredibly valuable in understanding how all of these technologies and all of these vast changes historically have shifted how we deal with different things within our world. The other part of it is the the reeling against them that we often hear as if there's some kind of negative influence in the way we interact with the world. Yeah, but the you know the truth is technology itself is neither good nor evil. It's just beautiful and dangerous. Uh, in the same way that uh, the knives in your kitchen might be beautiful and dangerous, we need to be intelligent about the way that we use our online technologies. But I think it's a mistake to moralize about them and and suggest that. The internet is uh, inherently evil, or that the internet wants you to uh, become a zombie. But can we really be in the moment intelligent about them, given that they are something that that is constantly evolving that we're dealing with? There's a little bit of the uncertainty principle at play here, in that we're trying to analyze them and look at its impact while we're deep in the heart of it. It's not necessarily a historical perspective as it is with some of these other technologies. We are in the belly of the beast at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it is difficult. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm 34 years old, so I was born in 1980. And I think uh, even being born then in 1980, 
gave me the privilege of having some pre-internet memories. And I think it's that, that kind of one step outside of the belly of the beast that allows me to, uh, to remember the value of disconnection. Uh, so digital natives, are they going to have that same, uh, that same ease with moving back and forth between the two? Uh, I don't know. Um, I, I, I think the best thing we can do is bring uh, media studies and communication studies uh, to, to our schools to try and uh, teach them a little bit about the history of technology, for sure. That, I think that, that uh, could, could help them to uh, figure out the value of absence for themselves. I mean, I guess the, qu- the other part of the question is, do they need to have that understanding, other, other than, again, from a historical perspective, but do they need to really understand what it was like before digital natives? They live in the world as it is today, and they need to mm-hmm. learn to operate and function both socially and economically and, and technologically in all the ways that are required within the context of the world today. Looking back at how, you know, and I'm a bit older than you, so I clearly remember the world before any of this. And it was just, it was not a question of good or bad. It was just different. Yeah. The value of absence uh, is an an abiding value, though. And I think that uh, while you, yes, absolutely, they have to... uh, they have to be uh, proficient with online technologies, and they're going to have uh, fantastic online lives, I'm sure. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, the value of solitude and daydreaming suddenly disappear, though. Um, for one thing, uh, we always are going to value, or I hope we will value, independent thinking. And online thinking, by its very nature, is connected thinking. And when you separate, when you unplug uh, your brain uh, and you push past that little moment of boredom or fear of solitude that we all get, what you arrive at is the opportunity to really uh, interrogate your own thoughts on your own terms. And so I think that's that's one example of of a mode of thinking that is always going to be valuable for us down the line. And yet, if you look at what's going on both in education and in the workplace, so much more is focused on exactly what you're talking about, connected thinking, group learning, team participation. This is the way yeah. education is moving. It's the way the workplace is moving. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, MOOCs are, are one of the things that comes to mind, mm-hmm. um, massive open online courses where the goal of a lot of educational institutions now is to uh, its scalabil- scalability, right? If I, if I uh, create a video of a course uh, being given at Stanford and then make it available to hundreds of thousands of people online, isn't that inherently a good thing? Uh, and it sounds great off the bat, right? Except when you actually look at what is happening to MOOC graduates, uh, first of all, the graduation rate itself is atrocious. Second of all, the people who are actually uh, designing these MOOCs have begun to really question what they're doing. Uh, it's a great idea, and it may be part of our education in the future, 
but it turns out that there is still uh, a great value to those little moments that we thought were not uh, productive in students walking to class and talking to each other with their books, uh, people sitting under under trees on campus uh, and daydreaming uh, about the philosophy lecture they just heard. That that whole uh, quality of authenticity that disappears when you when you uh, make everything productive and online, uh, it, it has results that aren't easy to quantify but are still valuable. What about on a smaller scale? I mean, if we look at what's going on, staying on education for the moment, what's going on with, with Common Core and project-based learning and deeper learning, so much of it is focused on the connectivity of groups. Um, well, I think what it comes down to is we know now that uh, you don't have brave new ideas by consensus. You don't get great paradigm-shifting moments uh, uh, in a comment feed or when you uh, are processing uh, uh, critical opinion through an algorithm on, on Rotten Tomatoes. Great uh, new ideas always come from solitude. And uh, that's something that we have to remember, e- even as we continue to make brave new uh, digital connections with each other. Of course, what we also have to think about is how all of this technology of today progresses, just as those of us, and, and I include, you know, you say you're, you're on the cusp, I'm a little further in the mm-hmm. other direction, have seen this change take place arguably so much of the technology that is relevant today, even for digital natives, will be outdated and replaced by something else by the time they get to be our respective ages. Yeah, no, it's true. I I mean, uh, I'm part of the first generation to have more digital uh, connections than uh, face-to-face connections. And... uh, the next generation through technologies that we can't even imagine today will undoubtedly have uh, digital lives that are larger than their, their uh, shall we say, real lives. Um, wh- where does that leave us? Uh, it leaves us with personal decisions, I think, is what it has to come down to. In the same way that, uh, you know, at a certain point, uh, uh, American uh, consumers had to start making smart uh, decisions about the food that they buy for themselves. They no longer uh, wanted to blindly eat processed food. They wanted to start thinking about organic food. I think we're going to begin to have the revolution online where people start thinking, what kind of media am I consuming and uh, how do I develop a healthy media diet? Part of it also is understanding the underpinnings of it. One of the things you talk about in in the book, in The End of Absence, is that this is kind of a Gutenberg moment. It's interesting to think about that that when mass-produced printing came along, the vast, vast majority of people had no ability to read, and and that that obviously changed dramatically over time. Are, Are we perhaps looking at a time... 10, 15, 20 years down the road when everybody, as a matter of course, knows how to code. I mean, is that the analogy? Uh, 
Well, I don't know if we'll be able to code because you know so many. If, if you want to build your own website, you don't need to code at all. Right. Uh, the the websites, in some ways, uh, uh, the the difficulty of what's going on online has been hidden from us. Uh, with you get programs that are very much like drag and drop sort of programs where uh, the the coders are almost a special class of people operating behind the curtain. Um, but to your question about the, the printing press, what's interesting to me is that uh, Gutenberg invents the printing press in 1450, and uh, it doesn't really transform the world for years and years and years. Uh, it takes uh, hundreds of years before uh, the, the majority of people are literate. Uh, so that was really an era that, that the printing press uh, uh, ushered in. Um, meanwhile, we are going through a Gutenberg moment. It's happening right now in this uh, tiny uh, uh, glimpse that, that we have the privilege of, of looking at. Uh, it, it's really the first generation in history that's lived on both sides of a technological change that's so dramatic. Uh, which which can be a really exciting thing. To what extent do you think that all of this is going to have a biological evolutionary impact in that it does? I mean, we, we hear a lot about it in a negative sense, the way that technology is reshaping our brain and changing neuroplasticity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In fact, yeah. these are things that are going to be ongoing, although it is a much slower process within the arc of evolution. We are indeed changing to adapt to the environment around us. Uh, that's true. I, we really have to keep in mind how slow uh, biological evolution really is, right? When, when people talk about neuroplasticity, uh, they're not so much talking about evolution as they are talking about within the course of your one life, how uh, your, what you experience changes the wiring in your brain. Essentially, you are born with the same brain that your ancestors 10,000 years ago were born with. So, like, evolution really hasn't changed us that quickly. Um, the, the point of change, the dynamic point, is within the choices that you make in your own life. You, you have uh, been invested with this fantastic brain by the forces of evolution, but then within your life, the choices your parents make, the choices that you make, will then shape that brain. So it's a kind of a, it's a balance between uh, nurture and nature. Right. I mean, and we see it playing out in the attention spans that young people have today across the board. I mean, there's almost a universality of that. It, although it, it may not be evolutionary, it is almost the equivalent of. I mean, attitudes, things are, are changing as a result of environmental fact, man-made environmental factors. Absolutely. I mean, we know that when people read online, that they read in a shallower way, that they skim text. Uh, we know that uh, the internet encourages distraction because the you know the, everyone who's making money off of the internet is making money off of uh, clicks and data mining, and uh, that requires your distraction. Uh, so. Th there's there's no there's there's no money to be made in solitude or absence. There's only money to be made in in distraction. Uh, but you know, uh, 
we can still exercise our, our brains back the other way. When I wrote that chapter about attention span in, in, in the end of absence, uh, I ended up uh, taking two weeks to just read War and Peace. And uh, it was a struggle for me because I had been letting my brain get very flabby. But like any kind of exercise, over the course of those two weeks, uh, it became easier and easier. So again, we, we, uh, we're not just victims, right? We, we, we get to make proactive decisions about uh, how we use our technologies and how they use us. And it's interesting, you say that there isn't money to be made in solitude, but perhaps there is, because there are resorts, for example, that are promoting and priding themselves on the fact that they don't have Internet access. And there's a whole wave of, of coffee shops in New York, for example, that are really dedicated to writers more than anything else that specifically don't have Internet access, and they argue it's a place you can come and have coffee and work and not be distracted. So there is money to That's be made cool. in that yeah. as well. That's a good point. Uh, in Vancouver, my hometown, uh, I think a cafe just opened where they actually have some, something built into the the walls that keeps out cell phone signals. Uh, so yeah, there there are little uh, glimmers of hope, right? And I I think um, that was that was why I wrote this book was because uh, I knew that uh, uh, there are other people like me who are starting to question these things and are trying to find new ways of, of reclaiming uh, those those moments of uh, of absence and solitude so that we can we can delve a little deeper into our thoughts or delve into that book without uh, stopping to text people every five minutes. It is interesting because one of the places where that solitude was was really present for a long time was in automobiles, and that is changing dramatically and rapidly. Um. Yeah, I mean, we and we know how dangerous that is when uh, when automobiles uh, are infiltrated by cell phones, right? I mean, we we know how many car crashes that causes. That's why we need the self-driving car, right? <laughs> right, so we can go on our phones, right, right, right. Uh, I mean, th- th- that's a place where we actually need our governments to step in and engineer absence. I think because I don't, I don't think uh, we can be we can be counted on. So uh, we do need laws, uh, unfortunately, telling telling us uh, that no, you can't uh, you can't uh, drive on a highway and text your best friend about the barbecue. Of course, we'll get to the point where it's a lot easier to text by talking than it is by looking at your little phone while you're driving. That's true. That's true. And you know, people are always going to find uh, ways to connect. It's it's. Uh, Built into our DNA, we just we love socializing. Uh, but you know, in the same way, we, we also love sugar and fat. Uh, but we figured out that in a super abundant environment, we actually have to put limits on ourselves. Right, and, and, and I same guess, thing for, for our food diet and media diet. Right, and I guess that is the fundamental divergence in this discussion that. We know scientifically that that excess of sugar and fat and those things you're talking about, we know those are bad for you and unhealthy for you. I'm not sure that you could make the same case, I certainly wouldn't make it, that this kind of connectivity and that the world, the wired world that we live in today is in any way bad for us. It's just different. Mm. Mm. Well, I I guess... 
Uh, I would point you to the American Academy of Pediatrics, right, which has stated, I mean, they don't really mess around with, with facts, and they've stated that if your child has more than two hours of screen time a day, then the chance of having attention deficit disorder does go up. Uh, so I mean, that, that's, that's just the first thing that comes to my head. We, we know that attention deficit disorder is related to uh, environments of distraction. Uh, so uh, does it have a concrete effect on our life? I think it does. Uh, in my own life, I've, I've seen that it does. That said, ultimately, the book isn't saying that technology is evil or technology is good. It's really just a call to action to make sure that people are uh, making decisions for themselves. They're choosing uh, when to use their technologies instead of passively becoming absorbed by a kind of technocracy. Except that for digi- coming back to this idea we touched on before, for digital natives, yeah. they don't know any yeah. of the world. Yeah, well, that's, that's why uh, we need media studies and communication histories in, in uh, our education programs, why schools' curriculums need to have uh, McLuhan uh, uh, on the reading list, I think. Um, it's also why parents need to model behavior. So, you know, if, if you're annoyed by your, your teenager being on the cell phone at the dinner table, it might be worth looking at whether or not you're on the cell phone at the dinner table, because a, a lot of adults... Uh, uh, are, are just as bad as their kids in that sense. But are those rules, and, and I think this is where the discussion sometimes gets a little twisted, because those rules aren't necessarily about technology. If you don't want to be on the cell phone or you don't want your kids on the cell phone at the dinner table, it is about manners and courtesy and human interaction. I don't think that's about yeah. technology. Well, it becomes about technology if, it, if technology is the thing that is wrestling your attention away from those authentic human uh, interactions, right? Uh, it's maybe not about, uh, uh, about the, the content of the technology. It's about the, uh, the uh, how should we say, the apparatus of the technological uh, uh, economy itself that you have you have machinery designed to wrest your attention away from other people um, uh, pe- I mean people who are actually present uh, in front of you uh, and so in, in that sense uh, it is about the technology and yet even that has it's silver linings. I mean, I think that anybody that has teenagers will tell you that sometimes it's easier to communicate with your kids, even about difficult subjects or about any, by text than it is face-to-face sometimes. Yeah, I, I've definitely heard that. I mean, Sherry Turkle, professor over at mm-hmm. MIT, uh, has written a great deal about how teenagers aren't comfortable with voice-to-voice uh, conversations or face-to-face. Uh, they're much more comfortable with text messages. Um, I don't have kids myself, so I, you know, I don't want to be preachy or anything. Um, but it seems to me that uh, you know, the best conversations, the really life-changing conversations that I've had with my parents or with my friends, uh, they haven't been via text. Um, the, I, I think you learn a lot by being in somebody's presence. Uh, 
But, you know, uh, it, it sounds like you might think that sounds kind of old-fashioned. Well, I just, I think that, I mean, personally, I mean, I think that there's a place for both. And, and, and I don't think we can abandon one at the, at the cost of the other and vice versa. I think that as we continue to evolve technologically as digital natives adapt and, and change within the context of the world they've grown up in, and the rest of us also have to live in that world, that we have to, to find new ways of doing all of this. It's a constantly shifting landscape. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, as I said before, it, it's, it's not about technology being good or evil. Um, I want to enjoy both worlds. I, I, want, uh, I want to be uh, in the present and be able to check the, the show times online, and I want to uh, be able to leave my phone at home and walk out into the woods and spend two hours with my own thoughts. Uh, the you know the, the book is really just arg- arguing that that latter thing, that quality of solitude and absence, uh, ha- there's a bias against it uh, that our online technologies produce. And that yeah, like you're saying, we just we just need to be intelligent about it, and we need to find that balance. The antithesis, I suppose, is that while there's a lot of talk, and you talk about it, this this leash time, how long can you be away, how far can you go without your phone connected to you before you have a complete anxiety attack? I, I, I would argue that the reverse was true for a long time, that if you were disconnected and you got too far away or you were on vacation or you would do that the anxiety level was higher because you were anxious and didn't have any clue what was going on well i mean connection breeds connection right uh when when you get used to having access to that phone it becomes uh, a, a, uh there's a an expectation of connection um, not just from you, but from everybody else, and you know that those other people now expect you to be able to get back to them in five minutes. Uh, the the number of cell phones on the planet has reached around seven billion right now. That's active cell phone accounts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that means that there's basically a one-to-one ratio between people and phones, which means uh, we really have arrived at the point where uh, you you can't expect other people to be okay with you being uh, uh, alone or, or cut off. Uh, and I think, that's, I think that itself is a shame, that, that people become uh, upset when, when you disconnect. Indeed, it's a brave new world. Michael Harris, our guest, the book is The End of Absence, Reclaiming What We've Lost in a World of Constant Connection. Michael, I thank you so much for the conversation and for spending time with us today. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.